Hello, friend, and welcome to the Rise Collective podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Jordan, and I'm honored to facilitate a place to gather and hear stories and teachings from our relations. Thank you for being here. If you find value in these episodes, you can become a patron and get exclusive bonus content at patreon.com slash risecollective. Before we begin, let's call in our benevolent guides. We humbly give thanks for your assistance and support today. May our listeners hear what they need to hear in service of their highest good. And so it is. Hello and welcome to the Rise Collective Podcast. I'm Carrie Jordan and this is episode 13. Today I'm sharing my interview with Darren Thompson. Darren and I met when he was teaching and performing at the National Museum of the American Indian in New York. I was enchanted by his beautiful flute music and the stories that he was telling. And at that museum on that day, I was under the impression that Darren was a resident teacher there. But actually, he had traveled specifically to teach at the Smithsonian and perform there that particular weekend. And when I found that out, I was so thankful that I got to be there on the same day as him. It seemed like some divinely guided moment. So before I get into who Darren is and what's in this episode, I want to let you know that you can contribute to the production of the Rise Collective podcast at our Patreon page. And when you do that, you'll get tons of exclusive bonus content from podcast guests and from myself. The giveaway for this episode, thanks to Darren. The Patreon giveaway for this episode, thanks to Darren for patrons at the $3 a month level, is an mp3 of one of the songs from his newest album. And you can access that on patreon.com slash risecollective. In the show, we're talking about Darren's background and how he taught himself to play the traditional Native American flute how Darren has viewed his music as activism and the undereducation of people around him in college regarding Native American life and history and his work making it all mainstream, making it all more uh, known to people. He's a true activist. And if you don't know Darren, I'll share some more about him here. Darren Thompson is a Native American flute player, journalist, and organizer from the Lac de Flambeau Ojibwe Reservation in northern Wisconsin. He has performed at America's most prestigious American Indian cultural organizations and institutions, including the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, the Heard Museum, and the Crazy Horse Monument. His second album, Between Earth and Sky has earned Darren a Native American Music Award nomination for Flattest of the Year in 2016. In 2017, Darren partnered with well-known flute maker John Norris to develop the Darren Thompson Signature Flute, and that flute reflects Darren's Ojibwe culture and provides a world-class instrument. Once again, if you're a patron, you can download the free MP3 from Darren's new album. Just check out the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Rise Collective. Okay, let's jump in. Hi, Darren. Thank you for being with us today. Hello. Thank you for having me. 
I'm really excited to get into this interview and to have you on today after um, we met a few months ago in New York at the, um, at the Smithsonian. Can you share a bit about yourself before we dive in? Yes. Uh, so in the capacity that we met in New York, I was playing the role as basically a cultural storyteller and musician. In addition to that, I am a journalist and writer, as well as a community organizer. And can you share um, about your lineage? Yeah, my, my lineage. So on my father's side, I am Ojibwe from the Lac de Flambeau Indian Reservation, which is in northern Wisconsin. And then on my mother's side, I'm Tohono O'odham, which is in southern Arizona. And my parents met at the Haskell Indians University, which is in Lawrence, Kansas, a long, long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> and now you've ended up in Wisconsin, right? Yeah. So my parents got married, and I was born and raised in northern Wisconsin, yes. Got it. So... It sounds like you are really involved in the Ojibwe community and um, tradition. How? What is your involvement in in your your mother's side? That's a great question. Actually, I have very little involvement with my mother's side, and that's particularly because I wasn't raised down there. Uh, okay. I have been getting some contacts from that community in the last two, two and a half years. And I do frequent Arizona, but not mm -hmm. particularly the community. So hopefully that changes. But at this point, I can't say I have any intimate or official involvement. Got it. Yeah, it sounds like your sense of place and being in the, the Great Lakes region where the Ojibwe people have been, it has really influenced which um, kind of which side of your lineage you've leaned towards. Did you see that? Yeah. Say that's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was raised by my my father's side and his family and all of our relatives, and they, of course, had you know a bigger influence on my upbringing. Mm -hmm. So can you share about the Ojibwe people for and set some context for the, the listeners who don't know? Who yeah, so the Ojibwe people have been in this part of the world since time immemorial. We are one of the largest tribes in North America with populations in both the United States and Canada or as far north as uh, Hudson Bay, which is in northern Ontario, down to having some very significant history in the city of Chicago, which if you didn't know this, the city of Chicago got its name from the Ojibwe and their language. Chicago in our language translates to mean skunk, and Chicago is the shorter form of Chicagoing, which transfers to mean uh, land of the skunks. And we're not the only people that kind of had this experience with that place, which is, you know, how and why the city got its nickname of the Windy City. But nonetheless, we're as far east as Quebec to as far west to the state of Montana. Uh, we have some really significant traits to our culture and our language uh, for many years. Depending on who's on the committee, 
our language is considered one of the most difficult languages to learn in the world. Uh, we have lots and lots of things discussed about who we are as a people, but essentially the majority of our population is in the Great Lakes, so Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Ontario, Quebec. Thank you. Do you speak Ojibwe? I speak it. I'm not fluent in it, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, in my home growing up, I heard mainly English, and I would say that that's predominant within people in my generation, especially in the United States. There are some communities in Canada that are still raising first language speakers, but it all has to do with policy. And when I mean policy, I mean educational policy and uh, different approaches within different communities. Got it. Um, can you share a little bit of what it was? I think you've shared a little bit already about um, growing up Ojibwe. Can you share a little more about what it was like growing up with that background and in that community? Yeah, so growing up, I thought growing up was normal. You know, I, I thought that everything we did was just how everybody else did things. And it, it wasn't really until I left my community at the age of 18. I went to Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is a private Jesuit school. Did I learn that we were very different um, in regards to how we use even the English language, of how we use our, basically how we communicate. So communicate both verbally and non-verbally, as well as how we understand things and how we approach many, many things. And then even down to, like, the tribal level, so, you know, there are many different tribes in the United States, and most of them are very different. So I had the experience of meeting several others, and their backgrounds and their communities are very different than mine. For example, uh, the clan system, a lot of people aren't very familiar with what that means outside of Native communities. Uh, clan system varies from tribe to tribe, but within mine, it's particularly kinship. So I come from the Bear Clan, and I'm related to everybody else in the Bear Clan. And one of the taboos in our community that everybody learns is that you can't marry or have kids with anybody from the same clan because at some point you were all we were all related. And our clan system is patrilineal, so when I have kids, my kids belong to my clan, and then some other communities or other tribes are matrilineal, where they belong to the mother's side of the family. So that's very different in regards to uh, European cultures, for example, where it's not only patrilineal, it's patriarchal. So we can't go as far as claim that we're patriarchal, uh, but nonetheless, that's that's something that I learned uh, growing up, and, you know, that's, that's like baby food. That's, that's very minute. But essentially, it was um, a very beautiful upbringing. I felt very privileged after I became an adult to say that I grew up in the Lactoflambo community. I frequent home as much as I can and always have a very difficult time leaving. Uh, there's one place in the world where I have an overabundance of family and friends where 
I can go to their home and if I knock on their door, they are offended because they claim they have no friends or family that don't have the privilege of just walking in their home. So that's very unique. That's very special. And wow. like other underserved communities, so that's, that's something I realized too, that our community is underserved in every capacity. So on a political level, on a, on a financial level, educational, uh, every, every level or every, every measure of a, a functioning community, we have been challenged. And as a result of that, we have a, a high crime rate. We have a very low life expectancy. Our educational gap is very large in regards to other communities. And so, in other words, uh, not many of our people really make it off of the community, and there are lots of reasons why. But uh, that that's something I also learned, too. And, you know, when I left home, it was always a goal of mine to try to better not only my community, but the understanding of who we are and where we come from. And we have a very beautiful history, and I'm currently in the middle of researching uh, several hundred-year-old political history of our community of why we still are where we are and why we even have the name of Black de Flambeau, it's three French words that mean Lake of the Torches. And long ago when the French came and met us in the late 1600s and early 1700s, they observed that there would be people on the lakes with a torch on, on their canoes. And what they were doing then is the practice that we still do to this day And the Ojibwe tribes of Wisconsin are the only tribe out of all the other 566 tribes in the United States that can do this off of an Indian reservation. And it relates to this history. It relates to things that happened before this country was even founded. And so that's really significant in regards to our political history in regards to our culture and our ability to vocalize and, and stand up for what our what our people mean and and what what we believe in. Can you share what the tradition of the torches on the lake is? Yeah. So what we were doing, uh, I always reference this to people. Um, if you ever drive a vehicle at night, and especially in the north or really anywhere, but and you see a deer in the headlights from your vehicle, you'll see, the first thing you'll see is the flashing of your lights in the deer's eyes. Well, right. what you can do on the lake is you can shine a light towards the, towards the lake and you can see that reflection. And in many species of fish's eyes, but there's one fish that's eyes shine much brighter and that's the walleye. And so what we were doing is using that light and that idea to see those eyes and then to spearfish them. And so to this day, we still practice that tradition every every springtime as soon as the lake's open. Got it. And that happens at nighttime, it sounds like. Yes, only at night. Yes. Okay. I was also wondering... Um, back when you were talking about the clan, how is the clan determined? Well, and what do you mean, like who belongs to the clan, or yeah, is it like you said, it goes through the family line? Is that the only um, way that that you determine what the clan is for a person? Yeah, so that's essentially it. So it's that, that you could call it a cookie cutter approach. So, mm -hmm. for example, when I have kids, they're going to be belong to my clan. There's 
usually not, it's very rare where someone will randomly be brought into another clan. Like, very rare. Okay. There's like one, there's like one time in our history that happened, and it happened like in the 1760s, I believe, where people oh, adopted wow. a, a Dakota boy who was a wolf clan, and they allowed him to keep his clan, and his clan was wolf. And so all the wolf clan, because we never had that clan in our tribal history, and now all Wolf Clan descendants were all descendants of, of this particular man from the Dakota people a long time ago. And wow. And that and that clan is still around today, I'm imagining. Yeah, partic- it's particularly over in Minnesota, though. There are some that, that are elsewhere, and it all relates to, you know, like who has children and where they live and where they, you know, transplant to, if you will. Got it. Um, I loved hearing you talk about your book. It sounds like you're really passionate about the history of the political history of why things are the way they are still and and how they got that way can you share a little more about your book project yeah yeah absolutely Um, so the book project is is kind of a new project it's something that I didn't think about very long. But what it is is I have to go into various archives and research references to lack the flambeau. But we come also from an agency called La Pointe, which is on an island called Madeline Island, which is in the Apostle Island, which is in Lake Superior. Because for many years, that's where all the Ojibwe people met. They all met on this island, and they met to celebrate the summer. It's so beautiful. If you ever get a chance to go there, you'll never. It doesn't even seem like it's in this country. Right, but, yeah, um, I've heard about that island, and there's not much there, right? Like, it's not developed. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt still have a home there, so it's pretty okay. developed. Oh, um, okay. I might but be thinking in, of a different island in, the, in that area. There's, there's other islands. There's a group of islands, and most of them are not developed, but... You know, they have an airstrip there. There's, It's a great place. It seems like an island in the Pacific or the Atlantic. But nonetheless, um, so what I have to do is I have to look at these, these documents and literally go through them and read them and, you know, read what people are saying, particularly political figures. So political figures obviously can mean politicians, but they also can reference religious leaders. So you're thinking like priests or sisters or officials within the Bureau of Catholic Indian Mission and what they're referencing. And so there's some really interesting information and findings that I didn't quite know existed, and they are in regards to how and why missions were successful or unsuccessful. I'm essentially finding information out about why missions were successful and unsuccessful and A lot of it had to do with how these religious leaders taught or reacted or treated members of the community. So other political leaders, and our political leaders could be referenced as chiefs or just people who had a significant voice, and even other holy people like medicine people, men and women, and how they treated them and how they treated their culture. And so our people weren't, they weren't dumb. They weren't foolish. They they knew what was going on. And the agreement that was made for us to cede millions of acres of land also included what is called treaty money. 
So, all right, so we're not just giving this to you. We're actually, like, making a sale. And the sale isn't just a one-time thing. It's, it, it is going to continue annually for several decades. Mm-hmm. And after a few years, when these guaranteed monies didn't start showing up and you had members of the church or members, because, of course, after these agreements were made, you know, the politicians are off, you know, still trying to earn votes among their constituents because we were not their constituents. And that's another thing, too. Our, our you know, American Indian people were not considered citizens of the United States until 1924. So I'm, I'm going as far back as 1670, and there's very little documentation between 1670 and, like, 1770. There's a little bit more after that, and until the telephone was invented, you know, there's a lot of correspondence between, you know, different officials. And, and what I'm gathering is gen, genuinely how people defrauded our people in, in, yeah, in various like ways. And, and here's the thing, though. It's not in our writing. We couldn't even write in the language. It's, it's, in, it's in their writing. So it's really interesting. So I'm not, I'm not, like, I'm not really trying to find these things. I'm not trying to find how awful these officials were. I'm just looking. I'm trying to figure out, like, how and why certain tracts of land are in the hands of certain people and not others, and why our people are as poor as they are. Why? There's a reason why. It's, it's, it's not because it's our choice. It's actually, uh, you know, decades of, of fraud. It's decades of of inaction and lies and deceit, and we still are living with that. And the the reason I'm doing this is one, there hasn't been a project done like this, and two, our people need to know, and three, other people need to know, because if we don't share this history, no one's going to know about it. And this ignorance, if you will, this lack of understanding of each other, is never going to happen. And that's essentially all we're trying to accomplish. We're not trying to accomplish kicking Europeans out of here. We're not trying to accomplish, you know, getting everything. We're trying to accomplish coexisting together. That's really what we're trying to accomplish. And so until that happens, there has to be a lot of education. And I'm just one small part of this of this puzzle. So that's essentially yeah. it. It's, it's going to be a wild goose chase. I have to go to various National Archive locations. Uh, fortunately, our community has a lot of documents. Um, the Library of Congress in D.C., different museums, different universities. I actually just finished some research at Marquette University. I was there for a few months looking. They have, you know, the Jesuits saved a lot of a lot of stuff. And so fortunately, you know, I was able to go back to my alma mater and just look at all these old, old documents and these documents are original they're not copied they're all like touched by the people who wrote them yeah it sounds like what you're pointing to is kind of a healing yeah and the first step to that is knowing the truth i think one of the most you know overall i've i've received nothing but positive feedback and support but one of the most profound reactions i got was i went to madeline island early last month in June. And I went to, they have a museum there that's funded and organized 
and curated by the Wisconsin Historical Society. And I spoke with the director and let her know who I am and what I'm doing and why I'm there. And she looked at me and she just had tears in her eyes. And she, and she said, I always had a feeling that one day there was going to be somebody who was Ojibwe that is that was going to say, I'm here to look at the history of our people and to, to do something about it. And, and I know that's happened before. I'm not the only person that does this. There's lots of people that do this, but I'm doing something a little different. I'm looking for everything, like every, everything. So it's going to take a long time and a lot of dedication, but the end product is, is why I'm doing it. That's beautiful. I love your commitment to educating, and it sounds like you also do a lot of speaking around these matters, and you're also involved in the community politically. Um, so all of these are kind of like tying together to go towards this mission of education. Does that fit for you? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it all relates to education and why, why I guess my identity or the hat I wear relates to it is because of my experience as an undergrad. So when I was an undergrad, I dealt with a lot of misunderstandings, misconceptions about who Native people were, let alone their history let alone specifically to even my community. And and I thought that that was very perplexing for me because we knew everything about them. You know, we knew who the fourth president was and so on and right. so forth, but they knew no one from our tribe. And it, it was... What's really impactful is that the contributions of our of our community and our tribe is significant to, for example, the entire state of Wisconsin. And then, you know, other you know, the Ojibwe people and their contributions in Minnesota and and Michigan and other locations are just as impactful. And so, there's very little. And so, yeah. And so, because there's that because there's that lack of understanding, there is that um, there's that fear that that exists here in this country there's a word for it that's not coming to my mind right now but it's uh the fear of the unknown essentially that that has dominated much of the dominant american culture you know we experience it right now on you know for example what's going on on the border because they're different um i think, I think yeah that's the word yep mm -hmm. so that's essentially you know what that's essentially at the core of what what a lot of native people deal with just because they don't they don't know who they are and 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 if there is any reference today it's in regards to Indian casinos and that's not good either you know that's not right so so it's a lot of work it it is very enjoyable but it's endless <laughs> um yeah. and and I started doing it uh through the channel of music so I started yeah, I'd love to get into talking about your music yeah, so I started, yeah, I started performing. I actually did not start playing the instrument until I was 19, until I was an undergraduate. I'm one of those students that reads through a book and forgets after about the fourth paragraph what I just read. <laughs> so I had to keep going back and like, what am I reading? Like, why is this important? How does this relate to why I'm in this class, you know, and so I, I, I talked to, like, tutors about this, like, have you tried listening to music or have you tried doing this? I'm like, no, I haven't. And so I started listening to different kinds of music, and I realized that 
there was this flute music I heard growing up that I thought was really pretty. And I remembered it back home. And so I just started, like, at the time, the Internet was still a thing. I'm not that old. But I started researching, like, different types of flute music. And I really, really liked it. It really helped me. Like, I start, I was able to really get a lot done. And I liked So I started listening to this artist by the name of Carlos Nakai. He's a really accomplished flute player. He's the only native American artist, music artist, to not only have one platinum album, but two. And he just plays the, the flute that I play. So wow. very accomplished, very, very accomplished. And so I, I started listening to it so much that I'm like, I wonder if I could ever play something like this because I didn't know anybody who played it. And so <laughs> I went to this event in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is where I was going to school. And I saw this vendor at this festival selling flutes and I just kept looking at I just kept looking at them and I'm I'm also one of those people that can't really say no to a salesman so he talked me into a sale <laughs> and you know I slowly started teaching myself how to play and I started playing more and more to a point where other students in the dorm were like what is that noise or what is that and I started you know, explaining it to them, and they were like, and then, so they had questions. They had questions of like, how is it made, or what are some of the songs? And sadly, I really couldn't answer the question very confidently because I didn't know either. You know, I was just playing, and so over the years, I developed this repertoire as a musician to answer these questions of how it's made, and what are some of the songs, and what are some of the purposes. So that people can really learn what the instrument is and what role it has played. And, you know, it, it, in reality, it, it plays a small role. It's just a, an expression of art. It's an, ex, it's an expression of life. And that's another thing I'd like to get into, too. In, in our language and in our community, there is no word for art. It's just way of life. It all relates to the way of life. So it's not separate. It's just a part of who we are. And if we have time to do it, we'll do it. That's so beautiful. Yeah. So that's how I started. And one of the kids that saw me play felt was an organizer for some cultural event and invited me to play. And I was like, sure, yeah. And I was really shy. I was really nervous. And I ended up having like seven, 800 people there, I think they told me that showed up and a lot of them were a lot of them were Jesuits and I actually created some really strong relationships with some Jesuits because they had a lot of questions and I just I learned I learned a lot from them in regards to our history and you know the things that the things that they learned the things that they were fascinated with because you know the way that they put it were all these kids that come to school here are all from the northwest suburbs of Chicago, and we barely ever get an Indian kid from the reservation, you know. So to them, I was like, you know, I don't want to say token because they didn't token. I wasn't on any special publications or anything like that, but, you know, they were always very interested in, in talking with me and learning a little bit more about what it was like, so just kind of what you're asking, what it was like growing up on the Indian Reservation. And the best way I can describe it is it was awesome. It was beautiful. Come visit us. It's amazing. Like, I just had a, a good friend of mine come from the cities this weekend, and we had, like, the time of our lives. It was so much fun. Wow. Yeah. I, lo I love hearing that. It was amazing growing up there and also hearing about the excitement that people had to hear your music and to hear your stories. It sounds yeah. like 
um, what you were doing when we met, which was sharing your music and telling stories about the instrument and the music, um, started when you were in undergrad. Yeah. From, like a practical need to to share to answer people's questions. Yeah, and there, there was there was also another you know I like the way you phrase that practical need because at the time I was going to school there they explored when I say they the university explored the idea of returning the use of an Indian mascot and its name so they were known as the Marquette Warriors from 1954 to 1994 so they had changed it and within those 40 years they had a, a, a tradition where they dressed up and played Indian, basically, at sports games and other community activities. And nonetheless, they changed it in 94. And then in 2003, a board of trustee member brought up all those wonderful memories and thought that it would be a great idea to bring back that tradition. And if the university decided to, that he would donate a million dollars and several other board of trustee members would also donate a million dollars. So just like that, there was $10 million that was on the table just for the university to do this. And strategically, they voiced that, no, they would not accept this money, but let's have a discussion. So they called it a fact-finding mission where they were going to explore whether or not this was going to be a good idea for the university. So it, even though they're saying it wasn't about money, it was about money. And yeah, because so they're still considering it. Yeah, yeah. And so Instead of unfortunately, just saying no. <laughs> it, it was really a difficult time for me because, you know, I was paying to go to school there. I all of a sudden had tons of kids and questions about what I felt about the mascot and stuff like that. And I, it was, it, essentially it was a hostile environment because I was singled out because of my heritage. Right. And a long story short, it ended up not becoming successful. And I did a lot of organizing, a lot of, um, you know, political organizing, if you will. I mean, just on a campus basis. But from that experience, I gained a lot of advocacy skills and organizing skills and that has carried on you know to this day my my first job out of college was I was a tribal liaison for the Wisconsin Department of Transportation and then after that I went to work for the National Congress of American Indians in Washington DC and that was working with hundreds of tribes and various branches of the federal government and other communities, other governments, and it just was in regards to advocating, advocating of who we are and what our rights are and what these things mean. And, and I still do that to this day uh, through my journalism and through my, through my other organizing activities. It, sound, it sounds like that was a really hard time, and it also, it also inspired a lot of your work. Yeah, it did. It was, it was very difficult, but it did inspire uh, I think I had endless discussions, every, you know, every day with, with different people about what all these things, like, you know, do you want to talk about mascots or do you want to talk about the misrepresentation of our people in in communities, in, in state government, in federal government, and, you know, health care disparities, 
the list went on and on. And, you know, we're just scratching at the surface if you want to talk about why why this is just not okay. Why this is, you know, we, we should not even be discussing it. Like, just on that level, on a higher educational, institutional level, it was it was just mind-blowing. It was disgusting, actually. It was really difficult. And during that time, you know, I I got arrested a couple of times for, like, civil disobedience stuff. And I had a lot of faculty and a lot of people supporting me as a kid. And I started speaking at different Jesuit universities, like Georgetown. and I, Well, Notre Dame's not a Jesuit university, but I went there. And I went to DePaul, and I had a lot of kid, a lot of students that were really interested, and they just did not get it. And I was followed. I was, I was pretty much harassed because I was being very vocal against the university about about doing this. And I've simmered down since then, actually. But you know, I was <laughs> I was very young. I would say that was like 13, 14 years ago. Sounds like so. you were very passionate and very courageous. Yeah, it was. It, I was very passionate about it. I, to me, it was a black and white issue. And it, you know, if if y'all didn't get it, it's because you just don't want to get it. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like a, a microcosm, a yeah. small example of a much bigger problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so speaking to that, um, I am about to kind of release my uh, a project that I was privileged to be a consultant and producer for. It's a documentary called The R Word, and the executive producer and director of it is a man by the name of Donnick Carey. And he is the executive producer of the Simpsons cartoon and the writer of Parks and Recreation. He was the joke writer for the David Letterman show. Really funny guy, really great guy, but he was a Redskins fan. And he started making this film as a result of his kids coming home. They live in Hollywood. You know, he was talking about the Redskins and his kids were like, hey, isn't isn't that kind of racist? And his dad was like, I, I don't know, actually, like, we don't have any friends who are Native American. So then they, you know, stuck their necks out and decided to explore this. And they went to Alaska. They went to the East Coast. They went to the Southwest, the Dakotas. At the time, I was living in the Dakotas. And it, it basically explores that question to Native people and some really predominant people. And it's going to be released at the Cape Cod Film Festival. I think that's where it's I officially can't say that, but I think that's the goal. But uh, it was a really beautiful project to be a part of, to see him explore this. And essentially, his punchline was, you have to be a really dumb white person to not understand that this word offends a whole group of people. And, you know, how, and, you know he also really he looked me in the eyes and said, how can, how can we pretend to be good people and support an organization that is harmful to another group of people. And so, and we weren't picking out people who were offended by it. That that wasn't the point. The point was we were just openly exploring the word and how how people how people felt about it. There were specific questions that we had asked, and people just went went along with the questioning. And so, when that comes out, I'll send you a link. Maybe you can share it with your listeners. But yeah. I would love that. So that experience has led has led to a lot for me, and you know I can talk very explicitly about it. And it is what it is. It's an, it's enriched me. I'm I'm not an angry person. It's given me a lot of beautiful insight to use the voice that I have and very strategically. Yeah, it sounds like 
you don't sound um, like angry about it at all. You sound committed to the truth. Yeah, and, that, and that's, like, that's of, really it. Of it's how just, people relate with it. Yeah, and, and that's it. You know, that's 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 the, the point, is I just want to share the truth. Um, I had a question that is specific to your music, and so kind of going backwards to how did you learn to make the flutes by hand? Because when I, when I was with you, you had all different types of flutes, and I'm pretty sure you said that you made them by hand. Yes, so how that happened is I started reaching out to people that made them and asked how, how they make them and how I would go about doing that as well. And so it took a lot of trial and error, figuring out what works best for me and how I want to be able to produce my instruments. And so the process that I do now is I go to museums and study instruments that were collected like the late 1800s, middle 1800s about. That's about as far back as they go, like in regards to archive collections, and take measurements from them and then recreate them. So, measure, you know, use rulers and, and then try to replicate them. Wow. So it, it's a hobby of yours to kind of go around and um, look at the the collections that different museums have, and then recreate what they have in their collections. Yes, and the reason behind that is there was a period of a lot of our history, particularly in the late 1800s and early 1900s, where our people experienced cultural genocide just differently. Uh, so not mm-hmm. violently, not not like warfare, but our our it was basically illegal for our people to continue to practice our culture. So we couldn't speak our language, and as we couldn't practice our traditional prayers. And as a result of that, many things went underground, and many of them never returned in our communities. And some of those things were simple things like making flutes. You know, it's not something everybody did. It was a very kind of a rare thing. I thought it was appropriate to try to look at some of these old flutes and and uh, bring them back to life. And some of the some of the older you know flute makers like you know just one generation older when they discovered the instrument they thought or they expressed they never knew that our people play these instruments like it was a, it was a totally missing wow. totally missing they had no idea they, they had never heard and so it was an epiphany moment and so their work is you know, carried on into me, and then you know, I'm I'm fortunately sharing this practice with with others as well. So, wow! So you are kind of reclaiming and reinvigorating this musical aspect of your culture, and you are the person who's kind of going to be carrying it forward after it's been under it's been kind of dead for a hundred years uh, or or so. Yeah, yeah, that's the perfect way to look at it, is just bringing, even though it may seem simple, it's bringing back a representation or an expression of a culture. And I find it very humbling when I meet parents or I meet kids who are inspired by, you know, work that I I do or have done and because you can never know. You, you'll you never know. Right. And it's, it makes it all worth it. I feel really 
I feel really inspired and impressed hearing about everything you've been working on and all the time and energy that you're putting forth to it really in service of your your culture and preserving it it's so beautiful to me i have really enjoyed listening to to you share these stories so thank you yeah you're welcome thanks for allowing me to share them do you want to share a little bit about your newest album that'll be coming out yeah so my newest and where album people can is- find you yeah, so um, people can find me however they listen to music. So some people listen to YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google, wherever. I'm on all those platforms. I have a website. It's darrenthompson.net. And my next album is my third album, which I titled Bibiguan, which means flute in our language. And that, in, that it, collection is... I recorded the album two years ago, and I still need to finish, like, some components. It should be done in the next three months. But that album included a couple of other musicians who also play the instrument. I have some historical songs as well as some of my own compositions, and that's kind of what I do. I blend the historical component with, like, my own with my own song. So I'm, you know, expressing myself in my own way as well as doing this other work with these other instruments as well. And so my music usually includes where the instruments come from or if they're replicas or what kind of wood I use and or who makes them. Because I don't always play my own instruments. I play other people's instruments as well. So when I say other people's instruments, I mean other flute makers who make them for me. So I'm really excited about it. A lot of people are very excited about it. They keep asking, so I know it's got to be a priority for me. I've just been really, really busy with, with things. But, if you know, that reminds me, if you'd like a, like, I do have an image of the cover, I can send that to you as well. So, yeah, that would be fabulous. I'd love to have that so we can, we can promote it with you when it comes out. And yeah. Thank, and additionally, Darren is providing a, a gift of an MP3 of one of his songs from his newest album. So you can download that on the Patreon website. Yes, that's great. So, um, so yeah, I'm so really excited so about much, it. Darren. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to hear your new album and continue following your work and your book as you finish that probably in the next few years, it sounds like. Um, yeah, it'll, it'll be take a big me a project, few years, so it'll take yeah. a while. We'll keep in touch, and thank okay. you so much. I will. I'm thank you. Cut it there. Yeah. Thanks for joining us this episode. If you got a value out of it, please take a screenshot and share it with us on Instagram. Make sure to tag me, Carrie. I hope the interview inspired you. It certainly inspired me to hear how Darren has really dedicated his life to activism and um, and keeping his native traditions alive. I'll put any relevant links that were, we mentioned in the show in the show notes at therisecollective.org and you, you can also find past episodes there. You can find my weekly blog and products for sale at therisecollective.org. While you're there, you can download the Guide to Feminine Goal Setting and 
using that guide, you can learn to work in harmony with folk magic and the rhythms of the earth. Hundreds of women have used this method to weave magic into their lives. It's a simple guide, and it'll help you move forward towards your soul purpose. If you love the show, please consider supporting its production at patreon.com slash rise collective. I can't do this alone, especially as I step into motherhood. There are lots of costs associated with the project, and if you, like me, believe that the voices of our indigenous elders and wisdom keepers and light bringers need a platform to reach more people, please become a patron. It's really worth your while, and it's really affordable at just $3 a month. So I hope you join us over there. Um, It's going to be a really special community as it grows, and I thank you so much for listening. Share it with your friends. Leave us a review, subscribe to the show, and I'm looking forward to next time. Bye-bye.